0: Uh, We're going to be in Luke chapter 18 this morning. Uh, We're continuing our look at the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. When you get there, say, I got it. (laughs) He does that every week. Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. If you do not have a Bible, my translation will be behind me uh, on the screen. And this is what the Word of the Lord says. And so in the year 2018, John Krasinski, better known as Jim from The Office, made his debut as a director with a horror film called A Quiet Place. Now, I doubt many of you have seen this movie, but in the film, a group of blind monsters attack planet Earth, and they strike and they kill anyone or anything that makes the slightest noise. They can even hear a pin drop on carpet. And so the only way to escape in the film the wrath of these beasts is to make no noise whatsoever, to be very, very silent. And for those who have seen the film, you know, while the monsters are quite scary looking, there's a few jump scares in there, what makes the film so uncomfortable to watch, what makes it so difficult to sit through, is that almost the entire movie is in silence. There's no soundtrack, There's no dialogue. There's nothing. Almost the entire movie is silent. And that silence, that perpetual, just no one saying anything, causes the viewer to get increasingly anxious, to get increasingly uncomfortable. And so watching the film truly exposes our uneasiness as humans with silence, right? We don't like moments of silence, especially if it's awkward silence, right? I mean, for many, the worst thing that can happen in a conversation is for there to be a few seconds of silence where no one's talking, right? If someone doesn't seem talkative one day, we just automatically assume that that person hates our guts, right? That we've done something wrong. We hate silence. And so how horrible the idea then that the very God of the universe is being silent, You see, for some, as we read today's text, as we deal with the topics of the return of Christ, right? The making right of all things and how Christ says He's going to bring it speedily and fast the day is approaching. We can begin to wonder as we look around at the world and we see injustices and these things happen just pile on and pile on. We begin to wonder, is God being silent? Is He ignoring our cries and our pleas. Our verses for this morning are the conclusion of what Jesus really began discussing all the way in chapter 17, verse 20. If you remember in those verses, the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, began to ask Jesus when the kingdom of God would arrive. And His answer was that the kingdom of God had already arrived in Him. That in the person and work of Christ, the kingdom had already come and is going to come again at His return in its fullness. And then he addresses the disciples. And he tells them not to fret, not to obsess over the days leading up to the return of Christ, right? Don't be like Lot's wife, looking back at Sodom and loving the things of this world more than you love Christ. And so the natural question then that probably arises in the disciples' minds is, how? How are the disciples and followers of Christ to not be like Lot's wife? How are we to not obsessively look for the signs of the end. In classic Jesus fashion, he's going to tell us in the form of a parable. And Luke explains to us the meaning of the parable right out at the gate. So if you look in verse 1, the point of the parable is this, that as we wait for the return of Christ, as we anticipate the arrival of His justice, we must pray. We must not lose heart. We must not give up. And so to illustrate this, Jesus' parable of choice involves a judge. And this judge does not fear God, and he doesn't care what people think about him. There's no sense of compassion. There's no sense of mercy towards people. And it is this very judge who is confronted by a widow in need of justice. Now, Jesus' hearers would have heard this situation. They would react to it like we would react if we heard someone was convicted of a crime They didn't commit, right? We know that that is unjust. And so Jesus' hearers would have heard that a widow not being taken care of, not getting justice from the place of justice, would have been an unjust thing. Widows were extremely vulnerable to being taken advantage of in the time of Jesus. They would have had no support system. And so it was a duty of judges to take care of these vulnerable people and vulnerable populations. And yet this judge doesn't care. He's not moved by the laws of God. He's not swayed by public opinion. He is completely and utterly self-interested. In fact, this judge is so completely selfish. Look at verse 4 and verse 5. He actually prides himself on not caring about people's opinion. He prides himself on not fearing God. He's proud of the fact that he is completely and utterly self-interested. And so this judge is not a person we would like, right? If you just met someone who was completely self-interested and loved how self-interested they were, we would avoid that person. We would find ourselves constantly annoyed by that person and how selfish they are and full of themselves they are. And yet it is to this unjust judge that this widow must go to. It is to this very self-interested, wretched judge that this poor woman is in need of. Of help from and so it should not shock us that based on the judge's character the judge says no and yet the widow is not easily deterred she persists and she keeps going to ask the judge and going and going kind of like the energizer bunny she's just going and going and going to the judge to the point where the judge just has enough The widow has worn the judge down to the point where he says, I will literally give you whatever you want if you just stop bothering me. She's going to him in the market, at his house, while his family is going out to eat. She is pestering him to get justice. And he doesn't give it out of the goodness of his heart, right? He's not like the Grinch whose heart grows three times bigger at the end of the movie and he blesses all of Whoville, right? He's not Darth Vader who at the end of the movie has a change of heart and becomes a good guy. He is only doing this because he's annoyed by her. He's only doing it out of his own self-interest so that he can stop being annoyed. And so perhaps some parents know what this is like, right? Your child just absolutely will not stop asking you about something and you just finally say, enough, you can have it, it's yours, right? This is what the judge does. He doesn't give out of a sense of compassion or mercy or care but simply to get her quiet. And so it is to this very statement in verse 5 that our Lord says to look at in verse 6. In verse 5 it says, Yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. In verse 6, the Lord calls to our attention what this judge has said. It says, And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And so now Jesus is going to ask us and His disciples three questions. And those three questions will address three concerns. And those three concerns will be our points for this morning. The first point, the first concern, is the certainty of justice. The question He asks in verse 7 is, And will not God give justice to His elect, who cry to Him day and night? The answer to that question is a resounding yes He says in the first part of verse eight that he will give justice to his people, just like the judge gave justice to the widow. The Lord will bring justice for his people. It is a promise of Christ that justice will come for his chosen people. But however, Jesus's use of this parable of the persistent widow and how the judge is so unjust and um, self-interested can really bring up some questions. We may begin to ask ourselves, is God like the unjust judge? Is God bringing justice one day, but only begrudgingly, just to get us to be quiet? Or is God silent and we must pester him over and over again in order for him to actually do something? For some, these verses, when we read this story at first glance, can seemingly confirm our worst fears about what God is like. You see, many may pray or just go about their day picturing God as being unjust and unkind. And when those moments where he does bless us, we picture him as doing it begrudgingly, right? Just to get us to be quiet like this judge with the widow. And so that person who views God in that way will spend their lives in fear and exhaustion trying to please God with good works and good deeds. And so it's vital that we hear this. Christ is not saying that God's attitude towards his people is the same as the judge's is towards the widow. What Jesus is doing here, he is saying, if an unrighteous, self-interested, wretched judge brings justice, then will not God certainly bring justice? If an uncaring judge will bring justice, then will not the just and caring judge of the universe bring justice as well? It's the same idea that Jesus asked in Luke eleven thirteen 13, when he compares and contrasts. He says, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? If an evil and unrighteous judge will bring justice, then how much more will our Father in heaven bring justice? We are to compare and contrast the attitude of the unjust judge and the judge. Of the universe, the judge cares for no- nothing for justice and the people, but God, the great judge of the universe, is passionate about justice for His people. God will not let His church go unvindicated. The judge heard the cries of the widow and ignored them. No matter how many times she went to him, he constantly ignored her. But God does not ignore the cries of His people. He hears their cries as they cry day and night. And so there are two similarities between this judge in the parable and God. One of these we'll look at later, but the other one is this. Just like the judge brought justice, so will God. That one day God will make right all things. That one day God will make untrue every sad thing. And so we are like the widow in that God's people consistently and historically experience injustice. Christians around the world experience persecution, accusations, and unjust suffering. And as they do, they cry out to God for justice. They want vindication. They want God to hear and answer their cries for help. However, we are not like the widow in the sense that we, we must beg for the judge to hear us. God's people do not have to beg God to hear their prayers. Our God and perfectly just judge hears us, whether we're crying in the day or whether we're crying in the night. God hears the prayers and the cries of his people. And there's another way we're not like the widow. You see, the widow in the story has no name. We are not given a name of, of this widow, and she's a nobody in the eyes of the judge. The judge doesn't care who she is, doesn't care to know her name or her life story or anything about her. But look how Christians are described in verse 7. It says, And will not God give justice to His elect who cry to Him day and night? God's people are called the elect. And what that means is we are not nameless individuals in a sea of people. That among the tribes and the nations and the tongues that will be in the kingdom of God, we are not lost in the crowd. This language of the, of the elect reminds us that God has specifically, with full knowledge of all that we are and all that we have done, has set His love upon you. He has set His love upon you individually and personally. We are not nameless people begging for God's attention. We are elect sons and daughters who the judge of the universe has redeemed and has given us full access to Him who knows of our every need before we even ask. This is who we are in Christ. And so it's ironic then that this parable has been used to push Christians, God's elect people, to pray, to have a prayer life like they're the the persistent widow. We think that the way we apply this parable is by praying over and over and over again in such a way that God will have no choice but to hear and to answer our prayers. See Samuel Storms asking in his book, Reaching God's Ear. He asked us four questions to help us think about this topic, to help analyze our prayer life, to help us see, are we praying like one of God's elect children, or are we praying as if we are a nameless person? We must beg God to hear us. And so we ask these four questions. Number one, do we repeat a request because we think that the quality of a prayer is dependent on the quantity of words? Number two, do we repeat a request because we think that God is ignorant and needs to be informed? Or if not ignorant, at least he is unconcerned and needs to be brought to attention. Number three, do we repeat our prayers because we believe that God is unwilling to answer and we must prevail upon Him, somehow transforming a hard-hearted God into a compassionate God, into a loving one? And finally, do we repeat a petition because we think that God will be swayed in His decision by our putting on a show of zeal and piety as if God cannot see through the thin veil of hypocrisy? These questions expose our hearts towards prayer. Are we guilty of what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 7, when he says, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Or are we guilty of not believing Jesus when in verse 8 of Matthew 6, he says, do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you even ask Him. Hear this, church, The quality of your prayers is not dependent upon the quantity of your words. God is not ignorant. He does not need to be informed about anything. He does not need to be awakened to attention because he's too busy busy focusing on something else on the other side of the world. We don't have to plead with him as if he's some hard-hearted God who needs to be convinced, who needs to have his mind changed about us. Nor is He a God, a God who changes His mind based on these external acts of righteousness and zeal. When we pray, God knows our every need. When we approach Him, if we are in Christ, His heart towards you is more loving and more gracious than you can ever imagine. We approach Him not with the wondering and the doubts of the widow, but we approach Him with boldness and with confidence in His love towards us. Charles Spurgeon said this, he says about God that his eyes never slumber and his hands never rest. His heart never ceases to beat with love and his shoulders are never weary of carrying his people's burdens. We are to approach God with the confidence of an elected child of God. And this is not to say we should not consistently go to God with requests or cries, as we're going to see in a minute. Jesus is encouraging us to do this. But the issue is this. Why? Why do we consistently go to the throne? Do we, do we go because we think we must beg and plead with God to hear us? Or do we go to Him as children, to the righteous and perfect judge of the universe, trusting that He will bring about everything that He has promised. Do we go to him as the widow or do we go to him as a child? And we can pray to him and we can ask for vindication and justice because God will bring justice. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. And so the next question, the next concern that Jesus is going to focus on is number two the timing of justice. So, number one was the certainty of justice, and number two is the timing of justice. And we may be tempted to answer this question with a yes, just like the first one. Has not God and our own perception, our own limited understanding, delayed in bringing justice? Can we look at the world today and see injustice after injustice poured down upon God's people? A study done in 2021 showed that every single day of the year 2021, 13 Christians were killed for their faith. Every day, 12 churches were attacked, 12 Christians in prison, and 5 abducted. In the year 2022, uh, advocacy group Open Doors said that 360 million Christians worldwide experienced high levels of persecution and discrimination. We also estimate that those killed for their faith last year were 5,898 people. We look at those stats and we ask, Has not God delayed in bringing justice? Believers throughout the centuries have wrestled with this very question and with texts like this because it seems at first glance that Jesus is saying that justice is coming quickly. Look how he says in verse 8, He will give justice to them speedily. A quick glance of this verse makes it sound like justice and vindication were just around the corner. And yet here we stand 2,000 years later and the day of judgment and the return of Christ has not happened yet. And so the Greek makes it clear here that when Jesus says justice will come speedily, he means that on the day of the Son of Man, the thing that he's been talking about since verse 20 and chapter 17, that when the Son of Man comes, vindication and justice promised by Christ will happen in a moment. In the blink of an eye, God's people, His church, His elect people will be vindicated. Their faith will be rewarded. They will see Christ triumph over the enemies of Christ's church. And so much like the rainwaters that fell during Noah's day, much like the fire that rained down during Lot's day, the justice of God will appear in a moment when the Son of Man returns. And you don't even need the Greek language to see that this is what Jesus means, right? He connects the vindication of the saints, the justice that He will bring to the return of the Son of Man, which is a future event. Jesus is not setting up the disciples to think that this is going to happen within their lifetime. But rather, Jesus assumes that there will be a delay from the time that this word was given to the day of the Son of Man. The vindication of the saints will happen at the return of Christ. And it will happen in an instant, in the blink of an eye. It will happen instantly. And until that day comes, until the Son of Man returns, we wait. And as we wait, we must not confuse the day not happening as a delay on God's part. We must not think that because the Son of Man has not yet returned, that He is like the unjust or uncaring judge. Do not confuse God's withholding of ultimate judgment and ultimate vindication as a delay on His part or indifference in His heart. Do not think that God is being silent. You see, this is where we see the second similarity between God and the judge. The first similarity was that both the judge and God brought justice. The second similarity is that the judge did not bring justice immediately to the widow. And God has not yet fully brought full justice, full vindication to his people. And yet that's where the difference is as well. We must not confuse God's actions as indifference or coldness towards his people. Remember the words of 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8-9, through where he tells us, when discussing the final judgment that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill any promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you. You know, as a baseball fan, I couldn't help but kind of think about um, the 2017 Houston Astros cheating scandal. Uh, So if you're a baseball fan, you know that in the year 2017, the Houston Astros were cheating their way through the entire season. They were knowing what pitches were coming uh, while the batter was at the plate. And they even won the World Series, and pitchers lost their jobs, and all these horrible things happened because they were cheating during the season. And they won the World Series. And when, when all this came to light, the commissioner of the MLB, Rob Manfred, right, we, we were all looking to him to bring the hammer down and bring justice and you know, kick him out of the league or whatever. But instead, what he did was he promises immunity to the players. He said, yes, you did what was wrong, but if you just confess, um, nothing bad is going to happen to you. That You just get to keep on going with your life and there are no consequences. And then when asked if he would take away their trophy, he described the World Series trophy, this thing that people grow up as little kids wanting to hold and to win. He describes that trophy as simply a piece of metal. In his handling of that scandal, he came off as unjust, as uncaring, as dismissive, as not taking it too seriously. See, God is not like that. God is not like Rob Manfred. God is a perfectly just God. He's not uncaring. He's not indifferent. He is infinitely devoted to his people. He is more passionate about justice than we are. He is passionate about vindicating and bringing justice to his elect. And he will bring that justice, that perfect justice, at the perfect time. And so we wait for that day. And the third question that Jesus asked is a challenge towards us who live before that great day. And it's a question not typically asked when talking about God bringing justice and God bringing judgment. You see, normally, when we mention things like Jesus' return and the perceived delaying of final judgment, the question gets put on God. We want to, as James Edwards says, put God on trial. And we want to prop ourselves up as a judge. We want to ask God uh, why he's allowed these bad things to happen, why he hasn't allowed perfect justice to come to planet Earth. And that is a sensitive question. And that's not one we want to dismiss. And that's one that we may have to wrestle with as individuals at some point in our lives. But the question Jesus asks puts us on the spotlight. The spotlight gets put on his disciples. And so the third concern in this text is the presence of faith. The presence of faith. In verse 8 of Luke 18, he says, I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on earth? Jesus tells us, God's going to bring justice. God's going to vindicate His people. That is a matter of fact. That is a promise that God's people can hold on to. God hears, God cares, and God will bring justice at the perfect time. But in verse 8, His concern is on something else. I love the way James Edwards puts it when he says, greater than the timing of the second coming for all the problems associated with that question is the preparedness of humanity to receive it greater than the timing of the second coming is the preparedness of humanity to receive it jesus's concern in verse 8 is on the faith of humanity and our readiness to receive the son of man when he returns And so the question for us is, will we be found faithful at the return of Christ? Will we have faith? And the faith that Jesus means here is not simply identifying with his message, right? He's not asking, will there be people who mentally assent or agree with my message? He's not asking, you know, will there be people who voted the Bible every election year? He's not asking, will there be those whose kids got good grades and stayed out of trouble and were in church most Sundays? Mental assent, well-behaved, clean-cut kids, church attendance are not necessarily signs of faith. But the faith that Jesus is discussing is the faith that trusts in, that waits for, and looks forward to the return of the Son of Man. Daryl Brock puts it this way, The Son of Man will be looking for those who are looking for Him. The Son of Man will be looking for those who are looking for Him. And in this parable, waiting for the return of the Son of Man is expressed through praying. To quote Brock again, Luke's goal is to call disciples to pray again and again for God's coming. Those waiting for the Lord will express that longing, that anticipation, and prayer. Asking God for his kingdom to come, pleading that his will would be done. You see, faith and prayer are intimately connected because prayer is an admittance that you need help and are dependent upon someone outside of yourself for that help. Right? The reason we don't pray as much as we should is because we don't recognize our need. We don't fully understand our need for God in every situation. But when we recognize, That need. When we realize that God is our only hope and the source of everything we have and everything we need, that's when we pray. Prayer is an act of faith, and the more faith and confidence and love of Christ that we have, the more we will pray. Prayer is like a soldier calling upon his his superior for instructions or help on what to do next. We are crying out, admitting our need for Christ. And so in this third and final question, Jesus is encouraging his disciples to watchfulness, to prayerfulness, praying specifically for God's justice to come, for his will to be done, for him to return with the fullness of the kingdom. And yet for us modern Christians today, when was the last time we actually prayed for God to come quickly? When was the last time that we prayed for God to bring justice and vindication for the saints around the world? How many prayer meetings have we been to where the people prayed for their families, their health, their church's finances, the government, and there was not one mention of asking God to bring justice? When was the last time we asked Christ to return with His kingdom? Could it be the reason we don't pray for the kingdom to come in its fullness is because we are too comfortable with our own tiny little kingdoms here on earth? Perhaps we've become too content with our possessions and our comforts and our securities in this world that we don't want to part with them. Could it be there's a part of us that doesn't want to get, there's a part of us that doesn't want to part with our stuff? May it not be said of us that we were found not waiting for the return of Christ. You see, some people say, well, I am ready. I am fully ready and I'm watching for the return of Christ. I have all the left behind books. I'm listening to prophecies all the time. I got these charts. And what Jesus is saying is that's not being ready either. Being ready is not just doing those things. Being ready is watching in prayer for Christ. It is having a heart that anticipates and looks forward to the day when Christ will bring justice and vindication to His saints. To be ready for the return of Christ is to be found living out ordinary day-to-day faithfulness, praying and waiting for God's justice to come. And yes, we will do that with agony at times as we experience the injustices in the world, as we see the injustices the other people walk through. As we hear of people being sick, we wait with agony, yes, but we also wait with certainty, because we can be certain that Christ is coming again. To illustrate this point, uh, Dale Ralph Davis uses this illustration. He mentions a Moroccan soldier who was captured by separatist guerrilla warriors in 1979. Now, guerrillas are not the animal guerrillas; That's a type of warfare. Um, he gets captured by these soldiers in 1979. And he was held in captivity until November of 2003. Now, I was not, I'm not very good at math, but I think that's 24 years of being in captivity. And to make it even worse, he was engaged when he got captured. And so upon his release, 24 years, one of the first wishes that he says he wants to do when he gets back home is he said he wants to marry his fiancée. And most of us are probably thinking, dude, she has moved on. It is 24 years. She has mourned and she has moved on. And yet he gets back and she was waiting for him. And so after 24 years, they get married. And when asked, you know, how did he hold on to that hope in the midst of 24 years of imprisonment? He said he had a sort of blind confidence that his betrothed would be waiting for him. And so Dale Ralph Davis says, there was utter certainty on his part and yet an agonizing delay. There was a delay that he had to wait for and yet he waited for it with certainty. This is the paradox of what being a Christian, waiting on the Lord's return, looks like. Yes, we are in agony as we live in a broken world and yet we wait for Christ's return with confidence. And so may that confidence propel us into prayer, praying that Christ would do what He has promised, bringing justice to the world. You see, prayer is a sign of whom your faith is in and where you seek your help from. And oftentimes, the things that we pray for express the things that we love most. And so our prayers are not to just ask God to bless our families, health, and nation, though we should pray for those things. But if you think about it, even those are things that, that non-believers will pray for at desperate times. As Christians, we are to also pray that God would bring His kingdom and that He would bring full justice. And so the irony of this parable is that it teaches that the certainty of Christ's return does not move us to pray less, but to pray more. Right? That's, the lesson is not Christ is sure to come, so don't worry about it. The lesson is Christ is sure to come and make all things right. And so pray, and pray for that day. And as we look forward to the future advent of Christ, His advent in the past is what fuels our confidence. His death on the cross, something the disciples did not know was going to happen at this point. His death on the cross for unworthy sinners and His resurrection and His ascension shows us the very heart of God towards His people. The cross where Jesus stood in our place for our sins shows us, proves to us that God is not an unjust and uncaring judge. The cross proves to us that He has set His love and care upon us before we had even taken our first breath. We see that He's not uncaring about our suffering. In fact, He took our suffering so seriously that He entered into this world full of suffering to do something about it. That we could be free from sin and death. Charles Spurgeon, when preaching on this verse, says, The widow appeared at the judgment seat without a friend. According to the parable, she had no advocate, no powerful pleader to stand up in the court and say, I am the patron of this humble woman. If she prevailed, she must prevail by her own ardor and her own intensity of purpose. But when you and I come before our Father, we come not alone. For he is at the Father's side, the man of love, the crucified. We have a friend who lives to make intercession for us. And Spurgeon goes on and says, O Christian, urge your suit with holy boldness. Press your case. For the blood of Jesus speaks with a voice that must be heard. Be not you therefore faint in your spirit, but continue in your supplication. When we pray, the very one who told us to pray, hears it. And He serves as our faithful judge and our faithful high priest. And His blood pleads our case. And His blood has certified and secured our salvation in the day of judgment and justice that will come. And so as we wait for the return of Christ, we pray and we endure. And in those moments we are in the agony of living in a suffering world, we need just to look at the cross. To look at the cross from where our confidence comes from, to look at the cross that proves to us that we need never fear God being silent. Because God hears our cries. He will bring perfect justice. And on that day of justice, we will not have to fear being cast away. For if we are in Christ he will save us and he will bring us into the kingdom not based off of anything we have done but based off the righteousness of Christ. And so do you look forward to that day? Do you anticipate and look forward to the day when Christ will come and secure final justice and bring the fullness of his kingdom? Will we be found faithful?